Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, Washington, D.C. was known as a predominantly black city for decades, starting in 1957, when according to Cultural Tourism D.C., the population of African Americans surpassed the 50% mark. By the 1970s, African Americans were more than 70% of the population. But according to the Hill News site, by 2020, the African American population was down to less than 50%. Just like the city is diverse, the religious experience of black communities are diverse as well, and more than just Protestant Christianity. We'll explore these topics in the show today, where I'll be sharing a recording of a panel I helped to organize for the 2022 Religion News Association Conference held this past March in nearby Bethesda, Maryland. Our guests were Carol Mukman, a member of Masjid Muhammad, and the first Muslim to work directly for a U.S. president as a White House staffer. Neodore Glover, a member of the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Washington, D.C., who also works as a firefighter with D.C. Fire and EMS. Ryan Nickens, a member of Metropolitan AME Church and president of the Charan Center. And Aisha Ali, co-founder of Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community. With our terrific panel of guests, we explore their range of religious and spiritual perspectives the approaches their communities take to influencing the life of the city, as well as how issues like gentrification and revitalization of urban neighborhoods continue to change the face of what has been known as Chocolate City. The moderator of our panel was the wonderful Adele Banks, projects editor and national reporter at the Religion News Service. Unfortunately, there were some audio issues with Adele's mic early in the program, So I'm going to step in to introduce the first few questions, as well as through the program to remind you, dear listener, of who is speaking. We begin with Carol Mukman of Masjid Muhammad. Before I start, I just want to give a shout out and thanks to the um, uh, Religion News Association for giving us this opportunity to, um, to share some of our thoughts with you. I also want to bring greetings from Imam Talib Sharif of Masjid Muhammad in Washington, D.C. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'm with Masjid Muhammad. Masjid Muhammad um, is representative of the oldest, stablest Muslim community in Washington, D.C. and the nation. Founded during the 1930s by Elijah Muhammad, it was basically a socialist organization that uh, prohibited whites from attending. Uh, By 1975, upon Elijah Muhammad's death, Warf D. Muhammad took over, was elected, became the leader of the organization he immediately changed it, the tenets of the organization. Uh, no longer could we be exclusive in any race of people. Uh, and at the same time, he turned us to the universal tenets of Islam. Uh, what else can I say about it? It's, 
it's a wonderful group of individuals. We have members uh, of all races, all nationalities. Uh, from We have visitors now who come from around the world to see what we're doing. So it's a, it's a great organization, and I'm here to share where we are present day. Thank you. Our next speaker is Nia Doy Glover of the Baha'is of Washington, D.C. The history of the faith started in 1844 in Iran. Um, it's a worldwide religion, and it's spread throughout the world. Um, in D.C. in particular, so we have a governing body that starts from a local level, which is in the localities of, of any region all over the world, to we have a national level, which is an, the like United States has a national spiritual assembly, and then we have a universal governor body, which is in Haifa. So all over the world, we have this, this basic uh, structure. So as part of that governing body, I'm on a local level in Washington, D.C., and I just ser I've been serving for maybe two, three years. Good afternoon. I'm Ryan Higgins, and I am a member of Metropolitan AME Church. It, Metropolitan AME Church, um, began in 1872 as a merger of two smaller churches. We have been located at M Street, just blocks away from the White House, um, for over 150 years. And our work has been deeply rooted since our inception in liberation, worship, and service. We continue that work today standing on the shoulders of our ancestors who began it and we continue it in our city. I have been a member of Metropolitan for six years now and I work with, I serve as co-chair of our work with Washington Interfaith Network where we address issues around affordable housing, black home ownership, uh, public safety and um, climate change and immigration, and so I'm happy to be with you all and to talk a bit more about the work that Metropolitan has done, is doing, and will continue to do. Thank you, my name is Aisha Ali, and I am one of the co-founders of the Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community of Washington. We've come together in 2019 because as mindfulness practitioners, uh, we're all from different religions, or no religion, but we are all see the value of mindfulness. But through many years of practicing in white spaces, they were not places of refuge. There was some ease to be found there, but there was not refuge. And so we founded a place with Rashid Hughes, um, where we could come together and practice meditation, but also be together without the need to code switch, without the need to explain or restrain ourselves. And I will stop there and, and say more later. Thank you. Our moderator, Adele Banks, from Religion News Service, next asked our panelists how each of their communities are helping members find connection and direction during this continuing time of social upheaval. The first response comes from Carol Mukman of Masjid Muhammad. Okay. Well, at uh, Masjid Muhammad, we have a very active uh, congregation. Uh, the 
we have been involved. We are one of the founders, in fact, I see our brother Anutama here. We are one of the original founders of the Interfaith Congress of Washington, D.C., Conference of Washington, D.C. In addition to that, we're very involved uh, with other activities. For example, we also participated in the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in uh, Judge Brown's uh, possible, Jackson? yes, Jackson, to the Supreme Court, where we marched and supported her nomination. Uh, we also work with the, of course, uh, the uh, Washington Interfaith uh, Network to make sure that our congregants involve themselves in issues that are important to Washington, like housing and food. So those are just some of the things that we do, but we are very involved. My husband uh, was one of those that spoke with the religious leaders recently in support of statehood for the District of Columbia. So as a, our members in general are very involved in terms of outreach and working with other faiths and with other residents. The next response comes from Ryan Nickens, a member of Metropolitan AME Church. Metropolitan has been engaged um, even before the upheaval and liberation through our work with Washington Interfaith Network here in DC where we do our local um, social justice work through. It is, when you look at the numbers that Adele um, read early on, you know, D.C. In, 50, in the 50s was 50% black, 70s, 70% or so, and now we are, um, I think the last number I saw was around 47% of the city and seeing the push out of black poor people um, is enraging and it is for us a moral crisis that folks who have suffered in our city for so long are now the undesirables. And we do not believe that that is the will of God, that we push poor people out because they are the undesirables. And so we organize around affordable housing. We organize around living wages. And we don't just, we're not advocates, but we do this work alongside those who are in the margins. We don't tell people what they need, and we just don't want to be the religious, the righteous religious folks from the church three blocks from the White House, um, just kind of telling people what they need, but we walk alongside those who are in the margins. We ask them, what is it that you need? And what is it that you want us to voice? Um, and so that, that kind of work opens itself to people who, young people, who want to be engaged in the work, who don't want just the Jesus of Christmas morning in the manger. They don't want the Jesus of Good Friday hanging brutally beaten. They just don't want the Jesus who resurrected on Sunday. They want a Jesus who identifies with where they are, who they are, and how they want to live their lives. And that 
is what we've seen over since the upheaval, young people coming and people coming, wanting to be a part of a movement, wanting to be a part of doing something they feel is just and something they feel is right and being a part of an ancestry that says, um, my faith directs my actions to help and be in relationship and community. It's not enough just to come to church to worship. It's I have to serve my community and I have to seek ways of liberation. And we have seen more young people and more people come and join Metropolitan, not just from DC, but from around the world because of our stance around justice. The next response comes from Aisha Ali, co-founder of Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community. At Heart Refuge, we allow the space that we've been in upheaval since 1619. And we invite that truth among our members and the weight that has on our bodies. Often in the mindfulness community, there is a lot of attention to thoughts and there can be attention to relieving stress. Instead, in our community, we reconnect to our spiritual majesty. We are the embodiment of mindfulness. We are of the lineage of those who in 1743, when freedom wasn't coming no way soon, found really skillful, mindful ways so that I could be here this afternoon. And we also allow space for black parents to understand we love our children and we've been worried about them since they've been born. A space to acknowledge the beautiful and horrific existence of living in this society where our truth is often seen as irrelevant, or every 10 or 20 or every particular video, folks get excited and then run out of excitement. So we invite the practice of being with all of that, with gentleness, with kindness, and particularly how to meet it so that we don't wear ourselves out. Many of us are veterans of various movements. Uh, in my lifetime, I've been part of many movements and have seen that if we do not take care of ourselves, we cannot sustain our efforts. So that, those are the things we're doing, but allowing space for the grief of having a place where Howard Theater is where I saw Brooke Benton, some of you don't know, but some of you do. Uh, when I was a little girl at the Howard Theater with my grandmother in the magical place that U Street was, and the Elks home and the ladies on U Street with the mink stoles mm -hmm. strolling around, and the jazz clubs and all the things. You know, the dinosaurs didn't know the meteor was coming, but we do. How do we hold that? That's what we try to meet in our community. Thank you. And our final guest on the panel is Neodoy Glover of the Baha'is of Washington, D.C. So when I think about the upheaval, like, um, it's, it's, it's thought-provoking for me because black, black people have been going through upheaval since the beginning, since we've been here, right? 
Um, D.C. has the highest prison incarceration rate, one of the highest in the country. Three out of five black men have either, they're either in prison, on papers, what we call on papers, meaning, you know, probation, or have been in jail, right? So uh, black, black men has the lowest life expectancy in the country, in D.C. So, um, and then if you're talking about nationally, like, I believe it's like 70, maybe 65 to 70% of all black males or all children are raised in a single family home. So it's been a lot going on in particular, in D.C. in general, because that's where I'm from. I'm from D.C., so I remember when, when I was from D.C., I, I, I mean, I remember it was at 1.80% black. You know, um, everybody in my class from elementary on, the whole school was black. So, you know, um, on the west side of, outside, on the other side of Rock Creek was where, you know, uh, mostly white, white people were. So anyway, um, one of the things the Baha'i community tried to do, we have, we have initiatives that start from the grassroots, what we call core activities. And they start from children's classes to middle school. We call them junior youth, which is supposed to be a very volatile age from uh, I think it's 11 to 14. I have some Baha'i friends who are really out there in the audience who, who know this, um, and, and youth. And so one of the primary responsibilities is to release, one of the, the calls have been to release a society building power uh, of, um, of spirituality in our, in our communities. And that starts with, from my understanding, from, uh, in, from participants engaging in the word of God. Um, there's a quote in the Baha'i faith, the word of God is the king of words and its pervasive influence is incalculable. The word, and there's another quote that talks about the word of God is like a sapling implanted in the men's hearts. It's a coming upon you to foster its growth. So one of the things is for man, because I always thought about when people going through all these challenges, because I was thinking like, what can I give my people? You know. Um, you know, like material, you know, like we need so many different things and a lot of it's material and, and education. And one of the big, the main thing for, from my understanding and a lot of Bibles will say from their understanding because, you know, the, um, we have the word of God or the, the written word and then we have our own interpretations of that. So this is not law or anything. This is from my understanding of um, my uh, going through the, uh, the, the faith, um, the, uh, the words. So, um, but one of the things is that man to connect with his own reality and his own reality is spiritual. And that is a framework for progress in, it, in itself because material and spiritual progress kind of grow together. So from it just, so that's, that's one of the things that we do. We have grassroots initiative and people, um, we work in the communities and we work with people. So the, the people in communities become their own protagonists not us. So to raise up uh, strength within the communities, but not from outside, but from within. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning we're listening to a recorded panel discussion about the diverse perspectives on the black religious experience through different communities in Washington, D.C. The moderator for the panel was Adele Banks of the Religion News Service. 
Uh, Ryan mentioned uh, one of the challenges related to gentrification, which is something that seems to uniquely affect this particularly historic black religious institutions in this city and beyond. And I'm wondering if there are any other examples that you can give of maybe looking at how things have changed in the past decade or two. I mean, I know there are instances of you know historic churches that now have these tall modern buildings hovering over them in perhaps more ways than one. And I'm just wondering if any of you would be able to give some examples because I think people know the word gentrification, but they may not live it, and maybe you can help us understand how houses of worship are dealing with that, faith communities. Gentrification has been a challenge uh, with our congregation uh, that we're working with. For example, the two things come to mind. Um, we are in the process of expanding uh, our physical building and upgrading it. And of course, you have to apply for um, permits in order to do this. And uh, at one point, some of the newcomers were opposed to our expansion. And uh, we had, hadn't even thought about it, had never come up against this. But we are embedded in our neighborhood. So as a result of that, we worked very close with the Bates Street uh, Neighborhood Association, with the ANC, oh, the Advisory Neighborhood Commission, ANC, that's right. So as a result of, the, of our being embedded in the community, the good news is that the, uh, the longtime residents were opposed the, the newcomers and we were able to get all the licenses and approvals we needed in order for us to uh, do the renovation, which we are in the process of doing now. That was one example. The other example that comes to mind is parking. Uh, as you know, we're Muslims and our service is on Friday. So it's like on Fridays, we're really hassled with the uh, police, parking officials saying, uh, you know, being very, very uh, stingy in terms of the rules of parking in the neighborhood, as opposed to Sundays when people park <laughs> parallel, they park all over the, the driveways, <laughs> and nobody does anything. So um, we are working with the uh, police department to try to see if we can uh, resolve some of these issues and get a, a more balanced approach to those issues. But those are just two things that come to mind in terms of gentrification. I think in gentrification, people move into communities without knowing the cultural norms um, of that community. They move in with the idea of making a community they know nothing about better. Um, and so, as Ms. Um, Carol said, you know, parking becomes an issue. When you pull up, um, a lot of my friends are in um, ministry, are pastors, um, and, and so it's like people have moved into their communities and then they complain, they call the police for parking. Yes. Well, you have a church that is situated in the middle of your neighborhood. That church has been there for a hundred years, 75 years. It was there, it predates 
you signing your deed to your house. And so instead of having the conversation with the pastor of the church, they call the police and make noise disturbances. Um, I, I've been in white churches that are really um, loud, but you know, black churches can be a bit loud on Sunday with the drums and the instruments, and then you, they get the police called on them and police come in to worship for a noise complaint for a church that has been in that community on Sunday that loud for 75 years. That's a problem. That is a problem of gentrification that we see in our communities. It's not just with our places of worship. It is with our neighbors. They don't take the time to get to know their neighbors. And so police are often called and things that could have been resolved with a conversation are now putting neighbor against neighbor. Um, that is one. And then church is being priced out of a community they've been in for 75 years. They, are no, they no longer have the funds to um, secure their space. And so you see a number of churches up for sale and that was, and the pandemic excavated that process of churches going, um, moving. And then with affordable housing in our city, we now have parishioners that are commuters not by choice but by force because they cannot afford to live in this city and so they have no connection to that community any longer because they were forced to move out they were priced out of their own community and so now they're commuters and churches have saw churches have seen a decrease in attendance because if i'm going to um folks feel like if I might as well find a church in my neighborhood. Even though the ties to their home church are strong, gas prices are high. Finding parking is ridiculous in this city. Those are some of the things gentrification brings about for communities of faith in this city, and particularly black communities of faith. We were just hearing remarks from Ryan Nickens, a member of Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C., and before her, Carol Mukman of Masjid Muhammad. We next hear from Neodoy Glover from the Baha'is of Washington, D.C., followed by Aisha Ali, co-founder of Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community. Now, I, this is a, it's a very, this is, <laughs> this is maybe not my, well, it's a part of my Baha'i hat, but this is, as a native, I've been here for a while. So I, I was here doing, when it was murder capital, when drugs were flooding the city. So this kind of controversial because he's a controversial figure. But Marion Barry was telling us this. My aunt used to tell me all the time. Marion Barry was telling us. The mayor at the time. Yeah, the Marion Barry at the time was telling us, the Marion Barry that got famous for being on, you know, uh, smoking drugs. but. The, he was telling us for she was telling me he was telling us for years to buy housing in DC because people are coming in to take this city. This was in the eighties. I remember I remember one time my aunt said you could have got a house for like he was giving houses away for like a, you know these programs like a dollar or whatever. And he was telling her this was what was happening. What 
And what a lot of people don't know about him, and I'm just giving a little history, is that one, he's a very highly educated man, despite his troubles. Like he was getting his, his degree in, uh, he's getting a uh, doctorate in chemistry. Um, and when I, I spoke to him before he passed and I asked him how did I help him in his job and he said it helped him to think sequentially and that he can cut through the BS that people are trying to feed him. And so I guess what I'm saying when I say this about gentrification is that what happens is um, it, it, it's been happening, I mean they call it gentrification now but I don't know what they call Native Americans when they moved, when they uh, decimated a population and then uh, people moved in. So what happened was the city, murder capital, a high prison rate, families were broken up. Um, so when people start moving in, they were able to get these housing and able to get these, these resources for little or nothing, right? Build them up and then that, that's why we have gentrification. But it's, it's a process, it's not, I don't think people who have means of move in like evil to, to push people out, it's just a part of the, the capitalistic process when you buy low and sell high, right? And so um, I just think that's one of the things, one of the, that's one of the things that happens when the community is decimated, right? And so with that, as a Baha'i, one of the, uh, the foundation principles, what Baha'u'llah says is, the poor in your midst is my trust, right? And so it's incumbent upon us to work in communities at the grassroots but not as, not from the, the World Bank model of I come in and, and, and build a well before I ask you what you, what's, what's needed. The model is to, to raise up the, the indigenous culture within the community for their spiritual and material progress. That's the model for us to, to be working hands in hand with the indigenous population to help them with the, uh, the progress of that community. In our community, we encourage people to connect to their hearts because we are forever nomads. We are places until people want those places and then we're pushed out. Uh, one of the things, that, by the way, mindfulness comes out of Asian Buddhism, right? It's, it, it, it's, it's mindfulness here, but the roots of it is Asian, and uh, our community honors that, those roots. And again, one of, so often we're encouraged to leave our bodies because we gotta do stuff. We gotta make it do what it do. We gotta be about it. And the high blood pressure and the diabetes, because we are trying. We're, we're at this point, the DNA, right? That internal lash, the, you know, we don't have the lash coming at us from the outside. At this point, it's structural and it's inside. Okay, you're lazy, but you're getting on the bus at 5 a.m. to go someplace where you can't live. You know, you're lazy, but you're educating these children that are not yours and uh, will grow up to look down on you eventually how to tend to that loving heart. It's so important to reconnect that we are of that mammy who held that child and cared for that child and loved that child who was going to grow up and call her a nigga.
to connect to that and to tend to our hearts. We engage in a number of meditation practices that connect us to our bodies because we are so often are figures of utility, whether we are on the football field or the classroom or wherever we are, you just hear while we can use you and once, whether you got a PhD or not, I got friends in academia and yeah, it's gangster there too, you know. You're here or until you make me nervous or talk too long and then you're gone. So we encourage as, as all of our members go out into the different areas, some Christian, some Buddhist. Um, we have uh, people, even a, a brother from Brazil who's doing work, but encouraging us to care for our precious hearts. Nobody thinks we're precious. We may, they may think we're smart. They may think we're strong. But nobody thinks that we're precious. If they thought we were precious, we wouldn't go, yeah, I know, uh, they're dying over there, but that's just what they do. You know, that's, that, that's, that's just their condition. But when stuff, stuff, you know, things happen other places and the complexion is different, this is important. In our community, we honor that awareness. Not the, you know, whose suffering is worse, but whose suffering is honored. And that, again, this space where you can be honored for our reality. We in develop what you sometimes call, you know, a Soweto practice. <laughs> what, is, what is mindfulness when your mindfulness bell is a police siren? when your mindfulness bell is you've got children in the background. Often, uh, white mindfulness is silence. Well, if you living in the right neighborhood or your children, everybody's got a room, you can have silence. <laughs> but if you're living with other people, what is the Soweto practice in a larger community that is basically has a Johannesburg practice? This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning we're listening to a recorded panel discussion about the diverse perspectives on the Black religious experience through different communities in Washington, D.C. The moderator for the panel was Adele Banks from Religion News Service. And the first response comes from Carol Mookman of Masjid Muhammad, followed by Neodor Glover from the Baha'is of Washington, D.C. Uh, many religion reporters have reported on struggles with fostering growth and attracting new participants, um, especially in light of the pandemic that we have been going through and still are. Um, have your congregations or faith communities found ways to deal with that, or have you found that the numbers who may gather a particular day of the week are not your primary concern. The thought that comes to my mind right off the top is that right now we are developing 81 units of affordable housing 
as we speak, going up in Ward 8 in the uh, farthest, the poorest part of the city. These are the ways that we are able to not just service the members of our community, but to also uh, provide for residents of the District of Columbia in general the, that the affordable housing units will be available for all district residents. So I think that's one of the, the other thing is that we're very concerned about the, the physical and mental well-being of, again, not just the members of our community, but the residents of the District of Columbia in particular as well. And we have several programs that are very important. We have what we call a key bar. And this is a program for senior residents of the District of Columbia. We, they come to the Masjid uh, three days a week right now because of the pandemic for uh, lunch but not just feeding of the physical body. We have uh, trips to theaters, plays, uh, um, eateries, just uh, our concern is to take care of all facets of the human, the spiritual as well as the physical well-being of those. Uh, we have a program called SHARE. SHARE delivers food, not just to members of Masjid Muhammad, but to residents of the District of Columbia who need, who can't get to us, then we go to them, we take food. And again, always thinking of the total person. So not only are we concerned with the, um, the physical feeding, but also to check in to make sure that mentally and spiritually, they continue to grow. Okay. Um, well, it's been a, I guess when you talk, speak about numbers, it's been a, uh, a challenge after the pandemic, when the pandemic started, because of our children's classes and our junior youth classes, our um, youth nights. A lot of these programs that we had, these um, were kind of stifled because of that, um, especially um, with the children being at home and you know not the, a lot of single parents were kind of held up at home with their kids so it was just it, it, it became a challenge but the it's starting to um, and our Sunday we had a Sunday program that we have speakers every Sunday that people all over the uh, DC community come to listen to a speaker on topics from economics to art with from a Baha'i perspective and you know, spiritual and a Baha'i perspective so that's been kind of slowed down that's that's that went online um, so now what we one of the things that I guess is, that's coming up now is what the Baha'i Faith are having conferences and the conferences we have these conferences is a worldwide this is happening worldwide all in all the Baha'i communities all over the world in DC in particular we have different conferences in different in different sections of the city um, and all this is just to expose people to not only uh, you know from my understanding the Word of God um, which is, you know, the healing message for humanity in particular, and even the word of God, even the word of God is your faith, because as as by, as most people know, the Baha'i faith believe in the oneness of God. So we believe that that uh, there's only one God, and each messenger is like a chapter in a book, and he brings a new message, and the message is updated according to the times 
um, of, of the time, the, the times of that day. So, so what we're trying to, so one of the things is to have these, these conferences and we have these activities in the communities to raise up, not just, it's not really about membership, but to raise up the, um, the social and spiritual progress of the, of the community. And that increases membership as, as I guess a part of it. Our next speaker is Ryan Nickens, a member of Metropolitan AME Church, followed by Aisha Ali, co-founder of Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community. Um, we have not seen a decline in our membership um, and how we have engaged through um, technology, being an intergenerational congregation, is using the best of our talents and the giftedness that was that has that sits in our congregations um, and using them to keep our folks engaged. Uh, if any of you remember the um, white supremacists who damaged two black churches, Black Lives Matter signs, um, doing the upheaval, one of those churches was metropolitan and for a lot of people that just pissed us off and that also drew more people to us um, because for us our worship and our liberation is important and that and how we show that and how we were able to use that during the pandemic and the upheaval drew more people to metropolitan um, we are not starting with our pastor, Reverend Lamar. We are not a back down and take it kind of a group of people. Uh, we are a stand up and we will not back down and we will do what is necessary. And I think that attracted a lot of young people and people to Metropolitan because for so long we've had this image of this weak, feeble Jesus that Jesus is there to just love you and bless you and hug on you. Um, and we did not have, uh, for a lot of folks, they don't have this look at a revolutionary Jesus. And I think that in these times where we are looking for someone and we're looking to our faith to influence our decisions and where we choose to worship we are looking to connect with our morals and our principles. Um, and so that is what drew, and drew, that is what draws people to Metropolitan because we connect with, our, with a more revolutionary Jesus and God who is in touch with the people, not just in their joy, but also in their pain. Um, so we have not seen a decline, but yet a steady increase. Well, we have the gift of Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to going back into the uh, real world, but we have people coming from all over the world. So uh, we'll, we'll continue there. We're seeing more people come in um, as, they, as they meet the difficulty of these times and uh, social justice people who are worn out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so we just see people begin to come to the realization that the way of liberation must come through caring 
and being kind to their own hearts. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning we're listening to a recorded panel discussion about diverse perspectives on the black religious experience through different communities in Washington, D.C. The moderator for the panel was Adele Banks from Religion News Service. Thank you all. It's time for questions now. So please come along and ask questions. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kelsey Dallas. I'm a reporter for the Deseret News in Utah. I was so struck by the examples of conflict over parking or noise complaints in this gentrification conversation. Can you say more about what happens after the police arrive? Um, are they kind to you? Because it's like, oh, we understand you're a faith community. Sort of how has your relationship evolved with those police officers or other officials who arrive on the scene? Uh, I'll go first. Um, with Masjid Muhammad, the good news is that uh, we've been at the current location for more than 60 years. So, and we have spent all of the time that we have been there cultivating relationships, not just uh, with the neighbors, but also with, um, we have members who are policemen. We have, uh, uh, our members became, uh, many of them, the first Muslim policemen on the force here in D.C. So what happens is that it just so happened that at the, the highest point when we were struggling uh, with the uh, parking situation, the, the chief of police at the time came up and she knew us and she has been able to tamper things down uh, so that uh, it's, we have a new, well, fortunately, unfortunately, we have a new chief of police, however, and so you have to kind of start over again. But, uh, so it kind of ebbs and flows. Depends on who's in charge. (laughs) I would say um, from the friends that we have Um, the friends that I have who are clergy, it is, it's a wrestle because some, some folks understand that the church has been there forever. Um, and the police come and they, you know, share that this church has been here and doing, serve worshiping in this community for X amount of years. Um, we can't do anything about it. We can't tell the church to shh you know, give the church a time out. You literally cannot give the church a time out on Sunday morning worship. And so it's like the church has been here. Um, It's it's literally nothing the police can do. There is nothing they can do but calm the neighbor down. The folks will be gone in a half an hour. Church service will be over. You'll have your community, your neighborhood back um, or your parking back but it becomes a bitter relationship between those living in the community and those who worship in the community. It becomes a bit of a bitter relationship for those who just don't understand or do not want to understand that the church has been a staple in that community long before they came and either they built and foster a good relationship or, you know, houses go up for selling. You have the choice to move to another neighborhood or suburbia where you, 
you know, you gotta drive to church. And I wanted to kind of add to that as Muslims, you know, for 50 years we would do the call to prayer. Uh, and then the neighborhood changed. No one ever complained. In fact, it seems that people, you know, welcomed it. But then the neighborhood changed. The next thing you know, we were getting complaints saying you can't call the prayer in the morning because we're trying to sleep or, or whatever the situation was. Eventually, um, basically, we negotiated a truce, so to speak. We don't do it in the morning. We do it in the afternoon, you know, that type of thing. But it, it's, it's, it's interesting because you're right. Like I said, we've been there for more than 60 years in that one location. And uh, all of a sudden, with no complaints whatsoever. And you have, you, so we're, we're negotiating. <laughs> I'm Jack Jenkins with Religion News Service. Um, you've kind of spoken to this already in your answers, but I wanted to ask it directly. You know, all of you do work every day in DC, but an interesting thing about DC is that it's also this national level space where you know marching for Judge Jackson or like attacks by white supremacists on local churches becomes a national event. You talked about you know when activists come to the city, you know working with them, and I'm curious how you navigate that sort of, you know, you're doing everyday local work and sometimes that local work becomes a national or even international story. How do you kind of balance those different identities throughout the year? Okay. It just so happened that our current imam, uh, Talib Sharif, is a retired uh, Air Force uh, uh, person and who's traveled uh, the world, really, so it has been, it's, it's good because he's been able to represent us in terms of local, but also in terms of uh, national affiliations. For example, this past week, uh, there was a delegation and we're constantly now, because of the State Department, we have delegations that come in from around the world, from Turkey, and many of them want to come to um, Masjid to see, to, to participate in, in uh, services or whatever. So we are, we, I can't say we were brought in kicking and screaming, but you're right, because of, of the fact that this is the nation's capital and because of the fact that um, uh, it's, Masjid Muhammad is the oldest, most established Muslim community in the nation. We become the, the focal point, not just for Muslims here in Washington, D.C., but we also uh, communicate and bring Muslims from other places around the United States who are trying to develop relationships here. So uh, it is uh, a, a different level in terms of your religious affiliations. I, I know uh, for the Baha'i community, from my uh, insight, one of the things is, is, is staying the course of what we are already been doing and not to get swept up in um, the uh, 
I don't want to say emotionalism of everything or the, uh, the divisiveness of everything, but the state of course of what we've been doing at the grassroots all the way. And um, so that's been one of uh, the calls from our governing body is the state of course, not to get caught up in the divisive, uh, um, the, the divisive rhetoric that's in this you know, um, competitive nature of what's going on. And, and then, and another thing is that every decision we make, especially on, a, on, a, on our local governing body, it's nine members on each local governing body, we ask from the outset of every decision we make, whatever it be celebrations in the, in the uh, DC community, uh, how to think about the race, class, and cultural effects first, you know. And we had from one of our governing bodies too about what's happening with African Americans, um, in this in in United States, and to um, so we have a focus on working. Like um, one of the the prophet found a, one of the things he said uh, one of the central figures of our faith, Abdul Baha, said that the minority over the majority always right. So first the minority, and then you know the majority. He said that should be the um, I don't know if it's, you call it the watchword, but that should be our focus. So. Metropolitan is the first call for a lot of national religious organizations. It's that first call. It is what we call, um, they call, they want to host things there, they want to visit because we are, um, because of our history and also because we are steps away from power. We're steps away from a lot of what is happening. Um, where the rallies and the protests take place. Uh, and we are more aligned with, um, with our principles and our morals. Um, and so with the national organizations like Repairs, the Repairs of the Breach, um, we have welcomed them in for New Year's Eve service with Dr. Barber being there a couple of years ago. Um, hosted others, um, scholars who come in for um, things like this. We've been in that place, um, hosted things on our doorstep to call attention to things. If it aligns with our morals and with the way we see justice and liberation, um, it, it's, it's good for us. We don't see an issue with it, but I, I think keeping in mind that we are local, we are a local church with a global impact, that we stay local, we do that local work, we don't lose sight or get swept up in what happens when folks come in for a month or folks come in for a weekend or a day, but that those local issues around affordable housing, black home ownership, gun violence in our city, those things that, that are impacting us stay in our hindsight, stay right in our, our, our line of vision that we are working on each and every day. And if those national things come up that we are there, um, we, if they align with our, our vision and our, our work that we're doing and our morals and our principles. Thank you all. Can you all help me thank them, please?
Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank the Religion News Association for providing the audio from our panel at their 2022 conference. And of course, a big thanks to Adele Banks for moderating, and to our guests, Carol Muckman, Neodor Glover, Ryan Nickens, and Aisha Ali for their participation. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives of past shows, or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, and you can keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org. 